Hi, it's Carolyn. My guest today might love horse racing more than anyone I've ever met. And horsemanship is not only in his pedigree, it's in his soul. Sean Clancy is a champion steeplechase jockey who is even better known for bringing the legendary stories of the great horsemen to life in the Saratoga Special. This is Racehorses Etc., the podcast celebrating horsemanship. I'm Carolyn Conley. I've covered horse racing on TV for over a decade, exercised some of the best horses in the world, and represented top jockeys. Here, I speak to icons and everyday racing folks to deepen our understanding of horsemanship. Hey, Sean, welcome to Racehorses Etc. Thank you. Glad to be here. Well, it's so fun to have you on the show, and I've followed your work for a long time. You're a writer, editor, publisher, uh, owner of ST Publishing. And what does that really mean? It means you're one of the guys behind my favorite newspaper on the planet, the Saratoga Special. So um, you bring something so fun to the sport of horse racing. So where did it all begin? Uh, it really started with my brother, um, Joe. He was a journalism major in school, working at a little local newspaper, and I was riding races. So we started the Steeplechase Times in 94. So we did that while I was riding races from 94 to 2000, and then started the Saratoga Special in 2001, and it's 20 years, amazingly. Where did you start riding Steeplechase horses? My dad owned and trained horses, so I grew up with it. First picture of me anywhere. And I'm in a wind picture of my father's. He's riding a jumper at Radnor Steeplechase. And his owner, Donald P. Ross Jr., who actually, they owned Delaware Park years ago, he's holding me in one of the pictures. And I'm in my, I'm I all I have on is a diaper. I'm, I have no shirt, no anything. And I went to the races every, you know, we just, every time they were runners, I went as a little kid and then all the way through school and started riding pony races. And then my first thoughts, I was like, I want to be a jockey. I and mean, that's all the way back to mid, you know, mid seventies when I was a little kid. So how did you begin competing? Did you ride for your dad at first? Yeah. So I started riding pony races. I was lucky I got on a really, we we had a really fast race pony. It was the the king of all race ponies. He was a thoroughbred twin named Red Raven. Um, and he was actually by gunshot and he's actually related to Seattle Slough. So it was great. So there was Ricky Hendricks had him first and Blythe Miller rode him, Santa Hendricks rode him or Santa Nelson. Now Santa rode him. Um, I mean, everybody rode this pony and I was lucky that I came along. I was the last one to ride him. Uh, we knew, and it was very funny. We knew he was old, we didn't know how old nobody kind of knew. And, um, we, I rode him 14 in 14 races. He won 10 and was second four times. Years later, we finally got his actually pedigree and he was 22 when I was riding him. Yeah, last year he was running. He was 22. What a hearty thoroughbred. He lived on the farm until I think we, we've, we put him down. He was 30 when we put him down and we didn't know, you know, then we were like, you know, Red's old. We didn't know. I mean, I, I think if we knew that he was 22, I'm not sure. I mean, I mean, we figured he was 15 or something, you know, I mean, he was like the epitome of a, he was just a little racehorse. He, he'd pull to the start and get down and get wound up at the start. And just, you know, he was like, and just all class. I mean, that's where I learned, you know, those were the first great lessons of my riding, you know, career was all from Red Raven. 
we shipped him to the Iroquois steeplechase for a pony race there. And I'll never forget it. It was a $500 purse and they gave me a check for $500 in the winner's circle. It was handed the check. Oh my gosh, that's big money. (laughs) I I was 14. And I went to give dad the check. And dad was like, now that's yours. And I just remember like at 14, I was like made $500. That was a lot of money. You'd arrived at that moment. And then you went on and rode Eclipse Award winner flat top. Was that part of your champion season? I won a stake on him. I didn't ride him a lot. I only rode him a few times. I mean, I rode Victorian Hill was leading earner of all time, flat top, rowdy Irishman, um, two Ridley, some some really good horses. Uh, it was fun. I mean, I had a great career. It was fun. And um, I look back with, you know, great memories of it. How did you get from steeplechase riding to flat racing? I mean, my dad did both. So I, we were very much doing steeplechasing and flat racing. I mean, my, my father was stable to, you know, he was stable to Timonium during the summer, Delaware Park, places like that. So he had plenty of flat horses. I mean, he won the Federico Tessio with a horse named Format. Uh, he trained for George Strawbridge, which, I mean, that at that stage is, you know, Augustine Stable. I mean, I look back on it, I didn't realize it at the time, but there was no way we were going to, we could take Red Raven to Nashville, Tennessee except he was getting on George Strawbridge's van with all George Strawbridge's horses. So you kind of, you were able to tag along and do those kind of things. It was just great opportunity I mean, for a kid to go do those things. My dad, I feel like Taddy Bogle, who won a couple of big stakes and I was galloping her and running her, you know, I'd lead her over there. And that was when I was like, I don't know, 16 or 17 or something. I don't even know. And um, that was such a big deal. I remember him asking me, he's like, do you think, you know, do you think you'd like to run Taddy? And that was like, I think that was really the first horse I'd ever run myself. I mean, I, you know, I carried the bucket next to my brother and next to all the people who worked for dad over the years. But I remember dad driving the van, me in the back of the van with Taddy Bogle to Penn National, sitting on the tack truck all day, running in the race. She won a little stake, uh, off, on, off the grass. And, um, you know, cooling her out and then putting her back on the van, poulticing her back at the barn. I mean, it's just, you know, when we got home, it just, it was like, I mean, like every, I mean, I think, uh, I think a lot of us grew up that way. It was just, just brilliant memories. Your dad obviously was quite a horseman. What do you admire most about his horsemanship? Um, yeah, dad's interesting. I mean, I, he's, um, he's retired now, but he's, I think he's 85 or 86. And, um, you know, it's funny. People will ask me, like I have these great friends, my buddy and Kate Martin, who have a farm, and I lived with them for a while. And it was very funny. They would they would ask me. They'd say, "Sean, what do you think? What do you think we should do with uh, with a horse named Truly Nolan?" They'd say, "What do you think we should do with Truly Nolan? His leg looks. You know, I think he's got some filling in his leg." And I'd say. Well, call dad. And so we called dad. I mean, I'm like, I didn't, I mean, I kind I would have a pretty good sense of what to do, but it was always, ah, call dad, call dad. And he actually eventually worked for him and was their farm manager for years. And, um, we always laugh about that. It was always just called dad. Dad was, I think, I mean, he wasn't, he's not, it was never a great like salesman by any means, very much an old school horseman grew up with it. His father was around, you know, took care of fox hunters and did a little racing and, um, very natural approach to horses. Um, you know, really kind of slow down and stop and think about what they need. Um, he had a fox hunter, we called him rich. Um, he's just lovely horse and hunted him for years. And I remember I called him one day, I said, how's rich? And he was, he was 
gearing up for the for the hunt season with Cheshire. I mean, my father was he was fox hunting rich first flight with Cheshire fox hunt, which is a big good fox hunt. You know, all the way to he's probably eighty, and he said he said. I don't have him there yet, but he's close and he's getting there. And it was like, he was like, you know, he was training that fox hunter to get, you know, I mean, it could have been Charlie Whittingham talking about Sunday silence. You know, I remember bringing jumpers back. He brought a horse named, Oh, what a chief back. He was 13 years old and finished second. in you know, one of the biggest races of the year at 13. Um, So, you know, just all the basics of horsemanship and that respect for the horse that probably was just, you know, you say it was born into you, but it was really just from those formative years. Like I said, the wind picture when I was, I was a month old with that wind picture. And then, then, then you see the pictures of me riding and my last race I ever rode was in two, November of 2000. And there's dad in the wind picture. So your, you know, your life, you know, there's 30 years of my life that's come full circle from being a month old when he was riding to being 30 and there's my dad, you know, in the wind picture. Um, so, I mean, that's where it all started. That's really beautiful. You've brought so much of that passion and understanding to your work in both your website and the Saratoga special, which can be found there as well. Um, your respect for the horseman is apparent in your articles. You obviously grew up with that respect. What has it meant to you over these last several years publishing the Saratoga special to kind of document some of the old horsemanship and your favorite trainers along the way? I mean, I think that's really been the basis of what we've wanted to do was to try to bring those stories to people. And I mean, my favorite thing to do with the Saratoga special is to just spend time with usually the trainer, but a lot of it's jockeys too. I mean, I, I, I love really, you know, love talking to the jockeys and getting in their head too. I mean, over 20 years of doing the special, my favorite moments, my favorite articles, the things that have you know, brought the uh, most joy to me are the moments with, you know, Bill Mott. I mean, the, my, the stable tour with Bill Mott at Saratoga is just like, I mean, it, it, and I feel so, I'm just, I feel so lucky. I feel like it's just an honor. I mean, to walk down, I mean, here's a Hall of Famer who I respect his, his I respect his horsemanship to no end. And, um, we start at one end of his barn and go to the other end and then go to the little barn. Oh, he just kind of opens the door and walks in. And then you, you think, well, I guess, I guess I should follow him. So then you walk in and sometimes he doesn't say anything, which is so mott too. But, you know, as a writer, you're like staring, you know, you're st- in the stall with Royal Delta and you're just staring at her and, Mott's not saying anything, which he doesn't need to because it's Royal Delta and you know what she looks like. You know, you've, we've all seen her, you know, you like, she's just standing there in all her glory. And, and I'm thinking to myself, how do I get Bill Mott to say, he's got to say something I can't, or this is not going to work in a print newspaper the next day. You know, you're like, <laughs> you know, not, you know, and, you, and then you hear your recorder and you're like, Oh my God. You're like, you know, you know, I say, wow, she's big. You know, it's like, ah, oh, it's just terrible, you know, but those moments of walking up and down his barn, uh, Alan Jerkins, as everybody knows, is, you know, one of my all time heroes, um, and a great friend and a mentor. And, um, you know, I used to just, I, I just, 
I mean, I love everybody was sad when he stopped riding his pony, which it was kind of sad that he wasn't riding the lead pony. But for me, it was su- it was such a gift because he was in the golf cart then. And I'd just jump in the golf cart and ride along with him. And I'd have my little tape recorder. I'd have the tape recorder kind of hidden, which I never even knew he knew I had. I was like, he never said a word. And then years later, Leah Giamatti said, she said, he, she said that he'd see me coming and he'd say, Oh, and he's got that damn machine with him. <laughs> and I, I'd be hiding it. But, you know, riding around in a golf cart with Alan Jerkins talking about, you know, prove out an onion and galloping these horses, you know, I mean, stretching. He he was so brainy, he'd stretch out these sprinters and, and, and you know, galloping a horse three miles, uh, galloping a horse, train them twice a day. The, the pony blowout, he'd be on the pony. And then he had a really good pony boy named Judum. And Judum, uh, he would, he would pony, you know, blow the horse out while ponying the horse. He would, they blow out a, like a eighth of a mile and, you know, 10 or something. I mean, if, and, you know, you got to, so you got to pull him up sharp. You can't let him, you don't want to overdo it. You got to pull him up sharp. And he had all these great things, which I've chronicled him. And I pretty much have every word he ever said to me somewhere typed out. Um, those were brilliant moments. Frankel was amazing. I mean, I, that was a guy that I never thought I would. I, I was so intimidated by him when he first came to Saratoga. We just started the special. I was scared to death of him. I thought, oh, I'll never have a relationship with this guy. He's just, um, as we all knew him, he had a real gruff exterior. But man, walking down his shed row and talking about horses. I mean, I would walk back to the barn with him, and uh, you know, we just just talk about flute and you know all those horses empire maker i mean the triple crown with him was just like i mean i was never been so shocked when a horse lost a race i mean i was staying in the derby i'm like i just could not believe empire maker got beat i mean i was just i'll never forget it shug mcgahee i mean there's times we did it when shug was inducted in the hall of fame we did we called it Shug's 32 Flavors, and he would talk about the horses. And, I mean, it's it's just gold. I mean, when you you, you hear the, his thought, like dancing spree, I mean, the, the stories on these horses and lore and, and one after another, um, oh, it's just such an education. I mean, for, for, for me as a writer, it's such an education. And then for the reader, I've always felt like that's really what you're trying to do. You're trying to bring those stories to life and, and – um, I mean, I, you know, our game's tricky. There's a lot of people who just don't understand what goes into it. And, um, so if I can bring that, I mean, I'm not saying I, it's Tom and Joe and all of us and, and great interns. I and mean, we've got amazing kids come through there and go on to great things. So all of us have tried to bring that to life. One thing I enjoy about the Saratoga special is seeing you all on the golf cart with the interns and the newspapers and everywhere you go, there's smiles and people want the paper. People love the newspaper, the Saratoga special up at Saratoga. And you just have these smiling kids that are working their tails off. And I love seeing young people working hard. It's something we don't see as often as we used to. And I know it was a big part of my life. I couldn't ride a horse unless I mowed a lawn and had the $7 to go rent one, you know, and maybe enough for my brother to ride too, since he was going to have to drive me there. Exactly. So that... I like to see kids working like that and they're hustling and working and uh, it's just really fun to see you guys out and about. Oh, it's now that's been, I mean, if I had a choice, if you said you can go, you can go, go to, to the track in the morning or the track in the afternoon at Saratoga, I would, it would be, it's an absolute no brainer. I would take the morning. I mean, I, just because it's the, the vibes there and the energy's there and the day is still fresh and young and early and the 
kids are out and the horses are going and you're working and everybody's, um, you know, everybody's just in there. Um, you know, it's just that it's the racetrack. That's the, that's in its element. I mean, it is literally like, that's the, that's the, you know, the joy and the beauty of the track is the, is the morning. And, um, I just love that part. And, you know, we're picking up stories and people are saying things and you're handing out papers and then you look up and you see a horse gallop by, you're like, you know, there's, yeah, there's Royal Delta, you know, you're like, wow, look at her, you know, whatever. Um, so that's been just, uh, I mean, I don't know, this year's so different whether we go or not, I don't know or how it's going to go, but, um, that element of it is where, where you're really going to miss out. I think of Saratoga, that the atmosphere and vibe and the energy of the morning. And I think a lot of trainers would agree with you. I've spoken to Hall of Famers who said, gosh, you know, they just love the morning. They love training their horses. And one even said, boy, wouldn't it be nice if we didn't even have to run them at all? We could just yeah, do this. Exactly. And yeah. uh, I think sometimes we forget about that when we focus so much on what's on TV and we're watching the finished product sure. or watching the racing and not necessarily seeing all the background. It's easy to forget the magic and the magic happens in the morning. Right. Yeah. Tom Voss once said he, 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 and he's, I had a couple of horses with him over the years and great old friend of ours. And, um, he walked up, he was, he was sent the horse out of the paddock and he's walking to the big screen to watch the race. And he said, uh, I'll never forget. He says, I hate running them. I just hate running them. And I thought, Oh, wow. You know, like that's, you know, it was like, you think, well, you think people think that's the best part, right? Running them. But when the, the trainers are dealing with every day and, um, you know, it's hard. I mean, it's like you're a lot of us. Yeah. You, you'd like to just train them and never have to run them. So you work with your brother, Joe, you two on your website have the inside rail and the outside rail, your two columns. What's it been like to work with your brother throughout all this, especially having grown up like you did with your dad playing such a big part in your life? My brother is the reason why I'm, I'm a writer and I could have easily been just an old beat up jump jockey with nothing to do after I was finished. It was all his mentoring and his, I mean, I was going to retire from riding in 96. I had some, I had too many concussions. I was really in a bad way. And, um, he got me an internship at the blood horse. I'd written a little bit for Steve Wachey's times, but that was our thing. I wasn't a writer. I was panicked. Um, you know, and I look back, my brother, he read, he read everything that I, that I ever submitted anywhere. He read it first for, I mean, years and years. I mean, I was writing for the blood horse and the racing form and, and mid Atlantic thoroughbred. And my brother read every word I wrote. I mean, I would write a blood horse article 2,500 words on favorite trick. I remember writing that when he was horse of the year. And I mean, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't dreamt of sending that to, to the editor, Dan Mearns back then. I mean, no way would I've sent that without my brother reading it first. He's just a rock. He's just a very steady, genuine, lovely, steady person. That is just the most grounding influence on, on, on my life. What's your age difference? Five years. Um, He's the big brother. Yeah, he's the big brother. Yeah. Five years older than I am. He was. We're both Aries. He was born. He's born April first. I'm April 9th. Um, grew up in the same household. Obviously, uh, do the same thing. And we are so different. I mean, just like 
and that's part of why it really works because we have different, we have such different skills and such different approaches. Um, you know, all the way back to Steve Chase times, I had literally read a magazine, the Chronicle of the horse had an article about my career in it. I'm mean, not my career. It was about a day. I'd won three races at a race meet. I read the article. I was, I was, they had a bunch of mistakes in it. I got fired up and called my brother and said, we should start a steeplechase newspaper. This is the, we need to do this. this is ridiculous. Nobody's covering this sport. This is great. And I went crazy. Right. Like I can, I mean, I was on a landline, you know, from my future wife's house. I was dating her in 1993. She was riding. I read the article. I got so fired up. I called my brother on the landline. The next day he calls me back and he says, um, Right. If we do seven issues of the, of the Steeplechase newspaper, it would, come, it would be biweekly, come out every other week in the spring. We can start a week before Aiken. We'll finish a week after Fair Hill. And uh, if we don't if we don't make any money, if it's a complete bust, we will bl- we will lose five thousand dollars. And I said, I said, I said, OK. He said, do you have five thousand dollars? He was he is he had just gotten married. I mean, he's like, you know, working his tail off. But, and I said, I was riding races. I said, yeah, I got, I got $5,000. I could, I could blow $5,000. I don't want to, but yeah, I could do that. And, um, but it was all him, you know, he had gotten all the details, figured out how we were going to do it, what, how it was going to work. So we, you know, we revved it up, started selling ads. And after seven issues, the company wrote a check to me for five grand. So I got my five grand back after seven issues. Excellent. Pretty good, right? I love how pragmatic he is. What a great asset for you. Right, exactly. In the newspaper business, I mean, in the publishing business, he's so good at it. I mean, he's the guy laying it out, getting all the ads straight, you know, making sure everything's done. I mean, he's like, and Tom Law has been an absolute godsend. Yeah, I see you guys going 24-7 at Saratoga, and I don't know how you do it. Uh, I can see why you have sort of a seasonal approach when you push yourselves that heart. But you mentioned what a mentor your brother was in terms of your own writing. And clearly that's paid off. You won the Eclipse Award for writing when you chronicled the estate auction of Hall of Fame trainer Sidney Waters in 2009. What do you remember most about Sidney? Uh, you know, Sydney was a guy, I wasn't around him much. I just was, you know, watching him from afar. I mean, I did like all his old great jumpers and the flat horses. And he, you know, he was a guy that did both, which I loved. I mean, that the horsemanship to train a champion. I mean, he was the first trainer that ever trained a champion on the flat and over jumps. Shepard's subsequently done it, but he was the first. And, um, you know, just a great old horseman, you know, very old school style, you, you um, you know, he was like, he did the love sign. She won the test, came back, won the Alabama. You know, you're like, man, how did he do that? You know, and I, you know, in like seven days. In this estate auction of Sydney Waters, what were some of the more remarkable pieces that oh, were being auctioned off? It was, it, it, it was so, I, I mean, it, it, it was one of the most um, unnerving things I've ever experienced. When we left there, my brother and I went and we left there and it, it, it was like, you just, and I, I tried to write it and, and it was like, you just saw your life it, and it's, it was called life's work and it, it, your life's work just being auctioned off. I mean, the family, I think was, they were pretty much in disarray. I don't think they were getting along and they ended up just with this, you know, estate sale. And they, they were literally just putting things on tape. It was like cardboard box of like his eyeglasses, uh, some handkerchiefs and a 
pocket watch or, you know, and, and then they were, they were selling art, they were selling, and there were some huge things they were selling, but they were, they just sold everything. Um, I bought his binoculars and that's what I wrote. I put that in the, in the column and, and they, they were old, like that old metal, like binoculars and they were all beat up, you know, like the finish had come off the metal, like the, so you could see they were like black, but you could see right into like the metal from wear and tear, you know, you, and I just looked at them like, Oh my God, like the, you could just see them hanging from Sydney's arm and going up the stairs at Saratoga and clanging on the box seats when, you know, shadow Brook or green or, or love sign, or, you know, one of those quick call, one of those horses won or lost. It was like, you were looking at these binoculars going like, this is the man's life right here, win or lose and all these races. So I bought those for, I think I bought them for 40 bucks. I mean, it was just ridiculous that, and, and the, the actually still it had the, had his name, you remember the old plastic, it was a labeler. Remember the old labelers? Yes. My dad loved those. <laughs> yeah, they're great, right? So so it has the, it has the sticky, it has the label is S Waters Jr. on the right around the end of it, you know, so it's in an old leather strap that's had a knot in it. And I just remember it, it was, I was so saddened by it that like, that I was buying Sydney Waters binoculars for $40 because like there was nobody else like his, I don't know. It seems like his kids should have had them or there was should have been some. So it was very unnerving when you were there, you're looking at a man, like his life's work just being sold and people were buying stuff. I mean, I remember Joe Gillette, Joe Davies was there. He was buying stuff because he's a great mentor of his and uh, Dickie small was there. He was, he was trying to buy as much as he could. He bought a beautiful painting of Sydney on a gray horse. I remember um, there was an old bench from Belmont park that, you know, obviously, Sydney stole or his help stole or, you know, somehow it got on a van from Belmont Park. It was, you looked at it, it was just a, absolutely like, that's a Belmont Park bench, right? Um, and I think Joe, I think Joe Davies bought that, who actually subsequently bought Sydney's farm, which is brilliant. So it's actually kind of come full circle. So I'm sure some of that stuff that, that Joe bought is actually on Sydney's farm again, which is, which is cool. I mean, that's kind of neat that it, it's poignant that it kind of turned out that way, but, um, it was amazing just to watch. Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, I just remember Joe and I were like, we were just floored by it. I mean, completely floored by it. Well, clearly you brought the passion of that, the sentiment of that to your column. What was it like to win the eclipse award? Uh, it was a real honor. I mean, I was, um, I had, I had, I'd had a, I think I'd had a couple like honorable mentions and I just, I, I mean, it was a, like everybody, it was a big honor to, to, to win it. Um, you know, you feel like you're recognized. Um, it was cool to see like people reach out that were really close to them and kind of appreciate what you, what I'd done or what we had done. You produce a print nurse, a newspaper. Let me rephrase that. You create a print newspaper at Saratoga in an era where everything's gone digital Yet people love to have a copy of the Saratoga special in their hands. Do you feel pressure to eliminate a print edition because we're seeing less and less of that nowadays? Or is there something about Saratoga and having a print newspaper that's important? 
Uh, I, I mean, it's a great question. And we obviously, you know, we talk about it a lot as far as, you know, how to kind of adjust and how to, how to handle that. Um, if we're doing the Saratoga special, and I'll declare this. I feel like Joe Biden declaring is like running mate's going to be a, a woman. But I, I would be confident to say that as long as we're doing a Saratoga special and as long as there's a printer that will print it, it will always be a print uh, product. Because I do think it's I think it's I think it's really important to have it as a print newspaper to hand it to people around the backstretch to have people you know at the races with it and walk in a guy's barn and throw it on and throw it on a desk and have people reading it today's world where you're going so fast and everything's just flat out i just think we've really lost that kind of um the social structure the neighborhood the um i'm trying to think of the right word it's like a, the community of it and the 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 social part of like sharing something and um i think it's important people are reading it digitally, you know, around the world, but on site at Saratoga, I I think it's just, I think it's so crucial to have that print newspaper. Does it represent something bigger, something about the tradition of Saratoga, the tradition of horsemanship? Yeah. I mean, I think it's very old school. I think it's, uh, it's harkens back to the, the, the history of our sport, the history of Saratoga. Um, I, I think it's, you know, yeah. I mean, I think it's still, re- I think it definitely represents that, you know, back when I was going to Saratoga, with my dad, I mean, we, you know, I remember getting the pink sheet that was huge and the pink sheet would come out. They would actually print it. It would come out at night. I remember sitting in a, in a restaurant and the kids would come along selling the pink sheet and it had the results of the day's races in there and you'd buy it and you'd like, you know, before obviously no internet, no phone, no anything. We'd, we'd take the horse fan up there to let, you know, get the horse settled down, go to dinner and then actually get the newspaper to find out who won the races and who was running tomorrow. You got, remember when you got the overnight, you had to get the physical overnight in your hand to see who was running. Oh my God, look at this. Wow. Four goes running in the, oh, you know, wow. So yeah, I mean, it's a real tradition to it. Yes. The tradition and history of horse racing is so crucial. It's so important. You and your brother, Joe, and Tom and your employees have captured so much of the tradition of Saratoga. You've brought it to life for people like me who grew up on the West Coast and didn't have a background at Saratoga. And I've never been to the spa without reading the Saratoga special. They just go together. As racing changes, and we're in a very quickly a fast changing world what traditions do you hope the game holds on to uh, i mean i think the the horsemanship the respect for the horse you know the sporting nature of our sport uh, I, I think we've gotten so far away from that it's it just keeps going the racetrack management's where they worry about full fields and betting handle and i just feel like really getting away from the the, the sporting nature of horse racing Saratoga, for example, they, they, the stakes, the horses would take an extra turn of the paddock. And that's how far I go back. When I was a kid at Saratoga, you knew it was a stake. Even if you didn't have a program and you just, if you just woke up and walked over there and you were standing there, you knew it was a stake when the horses took an, took an extra turn. 
meaning the jockeys would get on and they'd walk around. And then instead of going straight out of the paddock, they'd take an extra turn and make it. And that was for the fans. That was for the fans. And, and yeah. that, right. Because they were giving the fans a, another view or just a little longer view and another view of their horses. And that's what we're supposed to be doing. We want people to come. We talk about, you know, we want people to come to the races and look at Saratoga's paddock today. Sadly, they have they have sold. There, there's tents, there's tents, there's bars, there's TV studios. I mean, just the space around the paddock for the people to see the horses has been has been limited so far in a in a in a not a not a long period of time. Never mind not taking that extra turn in the paddock for the stake. I mean, that like to me that is it's so, little things like that are so crucial to keep those traditions and, you know, that, that they run stakes, you know, if it's a short field, they're running the stake is the third race or the fifth race. And I understand the bottom line. I understand the, the economics of a pick six and the pick five and all that stuff. And I understand that, but you have to really walk. There's a real balance that you need to need to keep to protect the sport, protect the, the class and the sporting nature of our sport. And also run a business. I understand that, but it's like I mean, we it's we've gotten so far away from the respect for the horse and the old school horsemanship. Um, just filling races. I mean, the, the like Jerkins. I mean, the, we would talk about. I remember it happened so many times. It'd be Jimmy Jerkins, Leah Giamatti, Fernando Abreu, myself, a couple, maybe a jockey too, an agent, whatever. We'd be standing around talking at the barn or, or at the morning line kitchen or wherever talking about Jerkins and what he used to do. You know, like, man, I think he used to, he blew that horse out the day before. Then he galloped him three miles. He was trying to get, you know, and, and we'd be talking about, it. and it happened 10 times in the, in the middle of the conversation, the chief, he'd be listening. He's an amazing guy. He'd just be kind of half listening. You'd think he's barely paying attention. In the middle of it, you'd hear this out of the blue, and you always stop because it was the chief. He'd say, but you knew when the race was. And he'd just scream it. And we'd all look at each other, and, 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 and he's like, now you never know when the race is. They give you 25 extras, and then you don't know when you're ever going to run the horse. <laughs> You know, back then there were, you know, you knew you had a condition book and you, the races were in the condition book and you could train your horse up to that condition book, to that race. Now they, the, the, now they, they give you, they give you 15 extras a day. And I understand it. Racing office. I understand it. They're getting pressure from management, fill these races, full fields, full fields, full fields. And they don't let races go with, with, that's why we're going turf sprints, you know, more and more turf, turf sprints because they fill, but that's getting away from old school horsemanship and taking care of horses trainers today i'm not you could ask any of them they're just training horses they're they're just in perpetual training because you don't know you don't you never know when the race is the condition book and the way they fill races it's like no horses aren't even trained to a race anymore you can train into a stake because you know when the stake is and you can ask any trainer it's easier to train a stake horse because you know exactly when the race is okay on you know not this year because of the corona but it's like you, you actually can point your horse for that race. You can back off for two weeks, skip a work, back off, get it, and then, then bring them back to that race. That's not my, that's not my opinion. That's Alan Jerkins. I mean, the chief would just, he would, every conversation, he would say that. I mean, he said, but you knew when the race was. That's such a good point. I've often wondered, why are we seeing less horsemanship? And that's it right there. They, you cannot, 
gear a horse specifically to a certain date so important. and read them according to how you're preparing for that day, you just have to be sort of at the ready. And then yes. if, you, if you don't enter, you're in trouble and you might lose stalls. Right, exactly. The, the, there's pressure pressure on trainers to to run. I mean, the the pressure on trainers to keep stalls from the racing office is it, that's what people just don't. They have no concept of what's that like, what that's like. And I understand that. I understand the racing office. I understand the business of it. But horses are just they're just they're, they're the maintenance works. People trainers just give horse maintenance works because you have a race to enter. Oh, I better I better work them a half a mile because I got a race that I'm entering tomorrow for a race on Sunday. You work the horse on Tuesday, you enter on Wednesday, race doesn't go. Okay, you 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 come back on Thursday. They brought it back. Okay, you put them back in on Thursday for the race. Now is on Wednesday, so you put them back in on Thursday. Race doesn't go again. They bring it back again. You enter Friday for a race on on. Friday. Now your horse hadn't worked since Tuesday because you worked him for Tuesday because you thought you were going to run on Sunday. Now it's Friday. You still, you're still not in and your horse worked last Tuesday. So what do you do? You work him again on Saturday because now the race is Friday that you're entering in. You have to, you have to work him before you, before you enter, before you know if you're in Saturday morning, your helps off on Sunday. Mm, I better breeze him again today because I, I can't get to this race I, I can't get to this race without a breeze. If he last breezed on Tuesday and now the race is Saturday. And they're saying trainers breeze their horses too much. Well, that's why. Maintenance breezes. I mean, I, and, and, yeah. and believe me, there, there are trainers who just systematically, they're just, that's, they've got a system and they, tra- they breathe their horses. There's certainly guys like that, but, right. but I know from, Jer- I mean, Jerkins used, I mean, he's, he was absolutely, I mean, that's just l- my experience of listening to him and he, he that he's, he was just a huge part of it. And the amount of horses that are ready to run and can run, but the races don't go the rate. They don't get in, they overfill, they don't run, they bring them back. They, it's madness. And, and believe me, as a jockey agent, yeah. I used to have a beautiful call on a horse. I was so excited to ride. The race didn't go, didn't go again, didn't go finally went. But by then another horse we rode, right was ready to go. So he would jump in the yep. race. And pretty soon I've got two calls and you right. can't make everyone happy. Exactly. You're going to upset someone. Exactly. My, my, I have a line for it and I'm, this is just simply my opinion, but the constant demand and desire for full fields has ultimately led to smaller fields because people can't train horses for races anymore. They just enter and enter and enter and enter. And then your horse gets hurt. I mean, you've given them five maintenance breezes because you keep entering them back. You've, you can't, I mean, you can't keep a horse. You know what it's like. You can't keep a horse on the ready for a month. I mean, you, you, no. what, you can't do it well. So horses get hurt. And then the other part that would help with horsemanship is uniform entry days. In the mid-Atlantic, you enter, I mean, you enter for, you enter Monday for Laurel on Saturday. You enter Tuesday for Delaware Park on Friday. For Wednesday, I'm making this up, but I mean, I don't know the specific dates, but five condition books in your pocket. Yeah. Every Monday in the country, in the United States, if every Monday you entered for Saturday at every racetrack, you entered Monday for Saturday. You entered that afternoon, you knew if you were going to run. Okay. That didn't get in. That's fine. If you can't fix the, you know, 15 extras in the 25 races they they're, they're trying to fill okay at least you would know the horse is not running saturday 
Done. Okay. Say you enter for Sunday. You enter your horse. Oh, didn't get in. At least you know he's not running Sunday anywhere. Wednesday, you enter for Monday. It would make such a difference. That's a really good idea. People could actually train horses. They could train horses up to races. You would know when they're going. The amount of races people skip. What I mean is you enter Monday, you enter Monday for Laurel on Saturday and you that and there's a race on you you enter Tuesday for Friday at Delaware. The race at Delaware is better. So you skip the Monday. You skip you skip entering at Laurel for on Saturday because you like the race better on Friday at Delaware. You skip the Monday. It doesn't go. You skip the then it doesn't go. And 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 then you're like, oh man, I, I, I would rather run the horse at Laurel than not run them at all. But I skipped that spot to wait another day to enter them for Delaware Park. Little things like that would improve if we're talking about horsemanship, taking care of the horse and taking care of the owner and, and trying to improve the experience for everybody, improve that little things like that, I think would help a lot. I think you made a really good point just now that horsemanship is more than how you directly handle a horse, but it's how you enable horsemen to handle their horses. And we have many layers of it in our industry and we all have to come together to optimize it. That's for sure. You spoke to one of the greatest horsemen of all time in your most recent article of the special. And I saw this online. It wasn't the Saratoga special because we're not within the parameters of Saratoga right now. Regardless, it was an excellent article on Charlie Whittingham. You did a lot of research and spoke to a lot of people that were associated with the bald eagle. What was the most surprising discovery during that research? It's a great question. Uh, yeah, I had never been around Charlie Whittingham, obviously, because he's Californian. I never, I've actually spent very little time there. So it was fun to write about um, somebody who I hadn't written about. Um, and I knew, I knew how much people respected him. I mean, that was part of the reason why I wanted to write the article. So I think the genuineness of Charlie Whittingham was was the most it wasn't surprising because i kind of knew that but I, I loved hearing that from shug mcgahee and todd pletcher and daryl mccarg and chris mccarron and uh richard mandela and just to hear them tell a story or talk about how um how genuine he was and of his with his time and his um you know his advice at the sa- very same Breeders' Cup at Churchill Downs in 1988, he's there kind of cheering Shug McGahee up, who was down, feeling like he had a bad day, had a win in two seconds, but he was kind of kicking the ground as he was leaving there. And here's Charlie Whittingham kind of give, you know, consoling him, saying, you know, man, yeah, you know, he, had, he asked Shug, you know, what kind of day did you have? Ah, I had a win in two seconds. He said, oh, boy, you had a good, you had a good day. And that really influenced Shug. I mean, he still remembers that conversation. At the same, very same Breeders' Cup, Todd Pletcher, who had worked for him that summer at Hollywood Park, here's Todd. I mean, he's like, I don't know, 18 or 20 or whatever. He's a kid. And he had worked for Charlie Whittingham that summer, written him a letter, thanking him for the opportunity. And Todd, Todd said he go, goes to Churchill and he said, uh, you know, I want to stop by 
said, I think I stopped by Charlie's barn just to say hello. And he's thinking, man, this guy isn't even going to remember who I am. I'm like, he's walking up there like, going, this is like, he won't even remember who I am. And he sees him and Charlie Whittingham walks over and shakes his hand and says, thanks for that letter, Todd. Really meant a lot to me. And you think, wow, there's a guy that the influence of that one day at the Breeders' Cup, he's influenced, he's influenced future Hall of Famer Shug McGahee. I think it was 37 maybe at the time. And he's also influencing Todd Pletcher, future Hall of Famer, who's 18. Completely different scenarios. Wow. So so there's Charlie Whittingham. I mean, he's competing too. I mean, he's he's you know, he's running horses of the Breeders' Cup, but he also has the wherewithal, the genuineness, the the class to influence two guys that he could have easily not noticed Shug kicking the ground. And he could have easily not remembered Todd Pletcher or blown him off because he was busy with the Breeders' Cup. But no, he took his time, took took the time to just be a you know a genuine good mentor, influence, and and make a positive difference. And the the other thing you have to remember, I made five phone calls about Charlie Whittingham. I I made five phone calls. Those were the five stories. I could have easily gone to the next five and got five more stories and the next five and got, I mean, I could have called you and said, give me your, give me your best Charlie Whittingham story. Kindness. He, yeah, his kindness radiated in the barn. He, it's funny. I first arrived at Santa Anita Park and my father and I had driven overnight from Washington state and stayed at the little motel six across the street. And my dad shined my boots. I was 19 or 20 and we walked over to Clocker's corner and I think it was Chris Speckert, actually, the trainer, said, I have someone you should meet. And he escorted my father and I up to Charlie's barn, which is now Mandela's barn. And I really did not know, you know, the scene at Santa Anita. So I was just sort of in awe about everything. And he introduces me to Charlie. And, and Charlie says, young lady, where have you been exercising horses? I said, Seattle, Long Acres. And he said, well, if you can hold those horses, you can definitely gallop mine. He said, you're hired. Wow. And he hired me on the spot. Wow. And it turns out he went back to Seattle. I think he worked on the starting wow. gate crew up there. And he was down in Mexico, you know, at Tijuana. Wow. And, but it was just wonderful to just be around him. He was uh, he, he's kind to the horses, kind to the dogs. He'd stop in the tack room in the morning before we galloped the horses and just sort of say hi with a twinkle in his eye. And it was, you know, it was, everyone was called Charlie's Angels. We were mostly girls. There was a couple of guys there, but um, I just, kindness is yeah. the biggest word I can think of. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing yeah. guy. Yeah. Well, it's been fun, Sean. I really enjoy celebrating the goodness of this sport and the history and the horsemanship. And you're just the guy to do it with. Thank you. That no, was fun. It's great to uh, reminisce and great to talk about uh, the horses and horsemanship in this, uh, in this sport that we love. And keep up the good work with the Saratoga Special. That is a beloved, beloved newspaper. And people can find your work also on This Is Horse Racing online. Exactly. Now we will. Hopefully, uh, hopefully Saratoga will, will come back in some form or another this year. And then hopefully... Obviously, hopefully next year we're you know we're there with uh, you know the golf cart and the kids and the papers and uh, and the great horsemanship and enjoying um, enjoying the sport again. All right, 
Well, see you soon. And uh, we'll be looking for you online. Sounds good. Thanks. All right. Thanks, Sean. Bye. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Racehorses, Etc. Please go to carolynconley.com and become a Racehorses Insider. We'll keep you up to date with exclusive content and more. That's it for now. Remember, until we meet again, enjoy the horses.